Hey, this is Sean McNabb from Lynch Mob and Resurrection Kings, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you once again to another week of that, which for over a decade now we referred to as Focus on Metal. So this week we continue off where we left last week, talking with Great White's Michael Lardy all about their 1992 release, Psycho City. So if you haven't heard part one, then you can head up to focusonmetalpod.com or over to Amazon Music or even over to iTunes and look for episode 538 and you can catch the first about 40 minutes of this conversation with Michael all about Psycho City. So uh, this week, second final week talking with Michael, we'll pick up where we left off, like I said, and digging in much more into the recording and thought behind Psycho City and moving from there into a lot of the uh, tour stuff as well, and then whatever else that Richie wants to dig into. So if you were liking last week's episode, then you are definitely going to like this one. So I'm going to leave this intro short and sweet and turn it over to Richie, and once again, Great White's Michael Lardy. Did you have a vision on that record, or did you just go in and say, right, fuck it, we're just going to write songs? Uh, I think the vision we had is, you know, we all picked... um you know, like 10 of our favorite songs and put them on cassettes. And then, you know, songs that were similar and, you know, everybody kind of talked about um, which ones they thought were great. And we kind of listened to those for about a month, just from other artists, you know, just a vibe. And um, it was kind of, I wouldn't say a template per se, but it was definitely inspiring. It's, you know, uh, there was a ballad that was supposed to be on Psycho City that ended up being on Can't Get There From Here that um, was a very long form kind of Rolling Stones kind of uh, ballad, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, somewhere there, somewhere someone has a copy of that. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, we did that. We did some heavier stuff that we hadn't done for a while. We did some real bluesy stuff. Um, I don't know. It was just, you know, writing, writing that material was, was fun because it was, everybody was kind of in lockstep with what we were shooting for. Like, do we have that type of song yet? No. Okay. Let's work on that one. You know? Um, so, so there, there was a, not a theme per se, but there was a, a, a group of, of, of types of songs that we tried to put forth where it covered, you know, a lot of what we could do, I thought. Mm. Now, at that stage, were you guys jamming in the same room on ideas or were you bringing in songs that you were writing individually? Uh, it was about half and half, you know. Some stuff came up, uh, like Big Goodbye, uh, we came up with At The Ranch, you know, in the in the 11th hour. But, you know, that's always been a, a thing with us um, on... Um, once bitten, uh, our eleventh hour song uh, was that we didn't have. We went in the studio. Was Oliver now on um, 
Fleisch, I, it was uh, Mr. Bone. So yeah, we always like to leave ourselves the opportunity to come up with something in the last second when we've been rehearsing for two months, you know, and working together and, you know, giving ourselves time to jam. I think a lot of bands that, that write individually and bring, bring to each other to work up, I think you take away that sensation of, of the jam, you know, and, and what can come out of that. Mm. Um, Michael, how much pre-production were you doing at that stage for the records? It's probably about, uh, I'd say, t- 10 days to two weeks of, you know, real intense rehearsing once we decided okay, this is the tracking list, these are the songs we're going to record, um, you know, just drilling down on, you know, a song a day, really working out, making sure the parts were good, making sure, uh, you know, Audie was happy with all of his drum parts, you know, um, you know, and at that time when you're hearing the song over and over again, you're really drilling down, you start to be able to come up with, okay, so I know it sounds good now, so... What else can we add to it to to make it, uh, you know, be something a little more special? Mm. Um, so once you know the song so well, then you can start being a little more creative with, with extra production ideas on top of that. Mm. M- Michael, how involved were you in where you recorded the records? Well, you know, as far as where we recorded, the first uh, studio they recorded at, was a place called Total Access, which I was actually working there as a staff engineer. So it was a comfortable place for me. It was a comfortable place for them. They were familiar with it. Um, so, you know, up until 96, we had done everything at that studio. But you recorded some of this album in Perkins Ranch. Yeah, that was, that was we had done that, you know, to, to do uh, the... Uh, the basic tracks and I think we had the you know I had the fantasy that you know we'd be up there for four or five months but you know it was far enough away from everybody's family that they're like I'm not feeling it you know like (laughs) so once we got the basic tracks laid and a couple of overdubs everybody was like I want to go back and do it the way we do it so we went back into Total Access and and finished off the record Mm. and did you record the albums like the traditional way with the drums and bass first, and then you, you add on the guitars, and then in the end you do the, the solos and the vocals. Is that the way you did them all? Yeah, that's the way we certainly did, you know, as far as the parts. Now, we always tried to play together as a band when we were recording the basic tracks. Now, that didn't always give us the opportunity to keep anything as far as guitars or vocals because they were kind of guide uh, ideas. You know, it's just a, but just to get the vibe on the, on the foundation of the house, so to speak, I think it made a big difference to have everybody play along together because that is, for me, you know, we, we did some, you know, I'm really happy with the records that we did over the years, but the best, in my opinion, of that we are is when we're playing live. So the most we could do to emulate that feeling, I think, made a difference in terms of, how our record sounded at the end of the day. Mm. Um, you heard the term chasing the demo where you're, you're in the studio and you can't capture the vibe that's on the demo. Um, did you ever experience that? Um, I think the only one that I knew of that comes to mind is Can't Shake It. Now, we never did a demo of it, but we had done 
recordings of some shows we did in Japan. And uh, in the interim between Fly Shy and Hooked, we had uh, been doing the song in the set uh, for about three months before we recorded it. And uh, I felt like the performance we did in Japan that was recorded was, you know, much more powerful than the studio version of it. But, you know, in years following, in subsequent years, we had, um, you know, lots of live recordings of Ken Shagan. You know, very powerful and, and very inspiring. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's the only one that really comes to mind, mm. you know. Michael, at any of the band members, including yourself, are there any superstitions about the studio where, when you know, you might hear a musician say, I'll record my parts, but I don't want anyone else being there. Is there any anything like that? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think there's really uh, a superstition. I think uh, it's as long as it was, you know, those of us within the band and or Alan, you know, kind of being in our little bubble, we weren't much for having, you know, just people hanging out of the studio watching us do our work. We were, we were very, we held very true to this is our time, this is our space, this is our bubble, you know, let's keep it that way. So there wasn't any partying going on in studio. You know, if you had to do that, you had to, you had to finish your work for the day go somewhere else. Yeah. What about the label people? Did they come down? at all uh not very often like i said before the uh it was harder for them to get down and get in their car and drive 30 miles to come down they came down and um i think three or four came down and, and actually were present when uh jack sang his master vocal on what's been twice shy and we had them down to sing backgrounds on uh on wasted rock ranger so that was you know that always makes a record exec feel cool you know when they're part of part of the uh the process like that yeah now now for this record you got dave spitz to play bass um tell me how all that came about who, who knew him uh we had known him from uh there was a time when uh tony had a um uh, a grandparent uh pass away and he had to make the funeral so we were out on tour with tesla at that time and we obviously couldn't cancel a show so someone, someone somewhere in the organization had mentioned that, that Dave was a great guy that could learn a whole set in, you know, in 48 hours and, and you know, come out and do it. And, and he did. I mean, he came out and uh, I think he only made one uh, one mistake on Rock Me. He started to play it a bit like uh, 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 the Immigrant Song and I walked over to him and I said, no, it's more like uh, can't eat. Um, but, um, but, um, but. And he goes, oh, okay. So once he got into it, it was great. But uh, I remember the guys from Tesla standing on the side of stage going, man, I can't believe that guy did that. And uh, he just was, uh, you know, great player, great attitude, very, uh, very creative. And, you know, he was just part of what we were, you know, part of the, the mentality that we were in at that time. And, and he fit right in. Mm. Did you ask him to join the band? No, we hadn't done that because we knew he didn't sing, and, and having a singer was a very important part of our sound live because we never used backing tracks. Okay. You know, mm. we always, everything we have ever done has always been, you know, live without a net, as they say, right? Yeah. Now, one of the things I definitely notice on this record, and you kind of hinted at it, is like, an FU attitude to the company in a way because 
the songs on this, the 10 tracks, they're all long. Um, they all have a lot of, like, parts in it. Extended solos and extended intros and all that. Um, you just seem to have this mentality there that we're just going to do what we want and the songs are going to be what they want and if they all end up being six minutes or eight minutes, so be it. Yeah, at that point, we weren't necessarily worried about, uh, you know, having the singles because we we thought that, uh, you know, the people were, uh, you know, the, the company wasn't going to be supporting us. Uh, the writing was on the wall with that. So once that was the case, uh, we said, you know, let's, let's stretch out. Let's do some stuff that we wouldn't, you know, might normally be handcuffed in trying, you know, just to stretch out the, the like the tunes like you said and and kind of you know uh experiment with that i think one of the shorter songs um i remember is uh that song called i want you but you know part of that too was like it was all like a punk song you know it was so fast yeah yeah and that's got a, a big instrumental section in the middle of it so even the shortest song you couldn't release as a single that's true yeah <laughs> Um, did you always start on each record with a clean slate when it came to songs, or did you bring old ideas in? Uh, very rarely there were old ideas that didn't make the, the cut, or maybe it was just maybe a, a verse or a B section that didn't turn into a song at the time that might have carried over. And, you know, three years later, sometimes when you look at something with fresh eyes or fresh ears, you can hear something differently than you might have heard uh, at the time. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything that uh, popped out. I think that the, the very intro um, piano part was always something that, uh, that Jack had fooled around with. He couldn't play piano, but he could play this little thing, this little ditty, that, which he really loved because he was just, you know, figuring out that put my hands here, it sounds like this. And, and um, you know, he had that bouncing around for years. So when I actually heard it one time, I was, you know, inspired to take it, you know, to another level. So, um, you know, Mark came up with a verse and I came up with the, the chorus and the, and the bridge and the solo section. And before we knew it, we had a full song. So, yeah, it, it does happen. You which, know. which song was that, Michael? Uh, Love is a Lie. Oh, Love is oh, the second last track on the, on the, on the album. Uh-huh. Uh, I gotta ask you about the phone messages in the title track. Tell me the story about those. Oh dear, yeah. Um, that was actually a guy from uh, the Chicago area, I guess, um, that thought that we had gone into his brain and stolen the lyrics for House of Broken Love. Fucking horrible. And because of that, he was going to come and hunt us down and take <laughs> us out. Uh, Whose phone did he call? He called the office phone, Stravinsky Brothers. Okay, so that's how he, that's how he got the messages. I was curious, was it one of you guys that he called? No, he got the office number and called that and, um, you know, told told us what he was going to do. And, and uh, you know, the next time we played Chicago, I think it was Kiss, was Kiss on that tour. We had, we had had, you know, extra security for that. But, um, yeah, that's what that's what that all started from. Mm. Um, what made you put it on the record, though? 
Oh, it's just the new, that it was the intro to, you know, Psycho City. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that to us, was somebody saying that was kind of psycho. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you did the record, um, what were your expectations on it? Because you probably knew at that stage that the record company wasn't going to do much. Yeah, I, I think we were obviously looking for a tour. I, I think that, you know, because of our fan base, we um, probably were going to be able to do well enough to to perhaps go gold with that record. And uh, as far as I know, we're still pretty close. But here's another crazy thing the record company did. Years later, I think it was 97 or 98, the record company just decided to stop printing the record. So it's not been in the stores for, you know, 25 years wow. um, for people to buy. So, you know, I think, um, you know, Hook finally went gold. Um, so I think that Psycho certainly would do that if uh, get a chance. But, you know, one of the things that's going to be nice is I think in about five years we're going to be able to um, revert the rights of the, the record so we can start perhaps printing you know another version of it so uh it can be offered for people for sale because i always felt very proud of the record you know mm. why is there no cover song on this one it was just that's you know we came up with what we wanted to to say in terms of material and uh just you know that's the the group of songs that that made it into the into the hopper as they say did, did you even work up a cover for it uh, at that time, I'm trying to think if we were doing anything that was... Uh, oh, we actually did on a Japanese record. The version of Psycho City for Japan has uh, Somebody to Love by the Jefferson Airplane. Okay. And is that true that it was always Alan that put forward what covers you were going to do? Yeah, he always liked to, to make those suggestions. I know back in the day before I was in the band, he had suggested they do Substitute. And he was a big fan of Angel City, which all of us, you know, became fans of, you know, once we discovered them, realizing that they were the precursor for, you know, um, ACDC and other bands, you yeah. know, that they did it first. Um, so that was that was kind of, uh, you know, something we got, and we got very close with uh, with with Rick and with Doc. Um, I, I enjoyed spending time with Doc, the singer, lyricist, you know, rest his soul, poor man, you know passed away um you know six seven years ago i believe um but he was a he was he was a very interesting dude uh i enjoyed spending time with him you know it was it was uh one of those things that were you know mutual admiration society i guess Mm. um is there any particular song on that album that was really hard to nail that you 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 it was very difficult for you to you know, either get a performance you wanted out of one of the guys or, or even yourself. Uh, I think originally probably Big Goodbye, we tried to get it at the ranch. And because it was so new, we did, it didn't have the normal, since we created it at the ranch, it didn't have the normal amount of time necessary to do pre-production, have Audie rehearse the song and drill down on it a number of times. So it just weren't quite getting it. So we did uh, actually cut that basic down a redound of each. Mm. My personal opinion now, and you, you can tell me if I'm way off or not, but I think of all the great white records, especially early in the band's career, if someone said, right, 
pick one out that really showcases Mark's playing, I'd pick this one. Oh, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's 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 versatile. I mean, some of his best playing in 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 my mind is uh, the double solo he did on uh, Rose Motel. Yeah, you know, with the one side one side's pinned to one side, it's a wah wah. On the other side, it's just ripping guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, he did outstanding stuff on Maybe Someday. You know, even even the the clean stuff that he did on Doctor Me is very Dicky Betts. I love that. You know, was he one of these guys when you were recording him that you always recorded everything he did in case you missed something? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we, he would we would do a pass, and we would uh, you know because we had the limitations of analog at the time. You know, we would listen back to a section and say. That's brilliant, right there. You know, this could be way better. You know, and and kind of build the solos that way. You know, with Pro Tools now, you can literally record take after take after take after take, and then go back and, and put it together. But uh, you know, one of the, one of my favorite things about recording House of Broken Love is it was a ten hour session for just Mark soloing on that on that song, and. By the end of the day, his fingers were actually bleeding. He had played so much, wow. but you know, you listen to it and you go, "Man, melodically, it makes total sense," and you're drawn into the tune. And you you, you could probably, you know, if you know the song well enough, you probably could sing that, you know, sing that solo in your mind. Mm. You know, mm. to me, that's always a mark of great soloing is when it's so melodic that it that it uh, is so memorable. And Mick Jones from Ford was always awesome at that, you know. And you think about his solos for the Ford records, you know, you just go, yeah, I know how, exactly where the next note is, you know, because it was so melodic. Yeah. And uh, that's that's where, um, you know, the, the very, um, you know, land uh, seascape type solo he did on Love is a Light at the end, you know. Uh, long notes, just so much emotion um, that, that Mark did on those on those records. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I completely agree with you that that, that is a definitely a, a great signpost of, of what he did as as a guitar player. Mm. And w- would Jack be someone now that you'd have to get get him pretty early now with the vocals that his first or second take was always better. No, I mean he was always a workman. You know when it came to down to it when we were in the middle of it okay you know he was very fast at getting you know what was necessary but if there was a part that wasn't right he would stick with it and do as many takes as necessary he'd never get frustrated he just you know knew that it was all about getting the best performance getting the best read of the line you know he would stick with it he'd go for it all the way Mm. um you know the funny thing was that in the early days when he was a very young man, 25 or 26, we were doing What's Bitten, he did um, Gonna Get You and All Over Now, the master vocals, in one evening in a four-hour period. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he was that fast, you know, when he, when he, was, when he was definitely on it. Other songs, you know, have, have, have taken more work. It was interesting on What's Bitten Twice Shy, I always thought that he was thinking about it too studied, and... Um, when we told him to make it, you know, as loose as possible and, and just more conversational, then then we started to really get something. But okay. it, took, it took a number of tries at, at getting that to be what it, sh- what it ended up being. Mm. 
Where do you rank Psycho City in the first batch of albums for Great White that you played on? Um, to me, it was the 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 first complete album, and then and then Hooked would be you know close behind it. One of the things about Once Bitten and, and Twice Shy, they are both fun records to make, but to me, I always felt like they were probably about five or six of the tunes on the record were, were the quality that Psycho City was. Like, if you had if you had combined the best of Twice Shy and the best of, of, of Once Bitten, I think you would have had you know, a pretty amazing record. But I, I felt like Psycho City held up from the, you know, when when you put the needle down to you know having it finish it was complete it was a complete record peaks and valleys yeah. the whole shebang right yeah I, 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 I think you're right I'm going to tell you an interesting story now Michael I'm not going to keep you too long more um, I have a, a, a European copy of One Spitting and I told Mark this and it's got five tracks from that record on and three from Shot in the Dark and I want to know, are you aware that in Europe that's the way the record was released? Uh, I'm trying to remember if I was aware of that or not. You mean the Once Bitten record was put out that way? Yes. It didn't have... Um, it had All Aside One and Fast Road, and then it had three tracks from Shot in the Dark on it. I could believe that. You know, I, I think Alan was of the same thinking that, that the first side of Once Bitten was solid, you know. From from Lady Red Light to to Rock Me, it just went boom. You know, like that was that was where the where the meat was, and um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he hadn't uh, spoken to the the people at EMI England and said, well, "Let's let's release well, once bitten that way." Yeah, because do, do, I remember they were playing um, Save Your Love on MTV in Europe, and I looked at the record and I says, "This isn't this isn't even on the album." Yeah, it was funny because I remember Alan not being a fan of Save Your Love because I don't think he really understood the American viewpoint in terms of of how the power ballad uh, worked in the framework of of the uh, you know hard rock uh, genre. I mean, look at every band you can think of that that had huge ballads. Um, you know, so it was funny in America it became sort of what they call a turntable hit. You know, it was never it was released as a single, but didn't perform that well in terms of sales, but because of people discovering the song and hearing the song, you know, at uh, at performances, it became you know a very well known song as a result of that. Hmm. So, which song on Psycho City would you like to put back in the set that maybe you haven't played in a long time? Um, we did have "Step on You" in this set in 15 and 16 uh, I enjoyed playing that you know it's it's very heavy and it's very in your face um, we've played Doctor Me a, a couple of times and I always enjoyed that you know it's always such an upbeat tune you know where whereas it's just you know uh, and lyrically it's kind of one of those things where you're talking about desperation but at the same time you're like give me into it you know so it's it's celebratory for me because it, it reminds me of where it was at the time in, in my personal relationships so that would be fun I know we've been talking about um, uh, never trust a pretty face 
so yeah, there's some candidates to uh, to get back into the set. Mm. And the band now are is, are you writing any new music? Is there anything happening there? Yeah, we go in spurts, you know, because it's interesting about records. You know, now we 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 do a record to get gigs, you know, yeah. to have a new, have a new story. Whereas before, you did gigs to help sell a record. Yeah. Uh, so it's flipped on its head from where it was 30 years ago. But yeah, we Mark and I always you know kind of bounce off stuff off each other. Um, you know, a little riff here and there. We might jam out at Soundcheck and trying to keep a catalog of 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 what we have because when we make the decision to you know take the break to to do another record, we want to make sure that that we have uh, you know the bones for enough material to. Uh, turn it around um you know so it doesn't take six months or a year yeah i, I gotta ask michael before i leave you go um do you ever play pool with mark no <laughs> he's, he's apparently he's really good at it oh i wouldn't even after breaking i wouldn't even get up to hit another shot the guy, <laughs> the guy is amazing yeah mr mr nine ball yeah yeah i think he's just below the professional level yeah, and he knows a lot of the cats in 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 that business. He's very close with them, and um, you know he knows the guy personally, who now holds the the nine ball record for straight runs of of balls that were sunk. You know, so he's uh, yeah, he's that's kind of one of his you know fun things to do that that helps him you know uh, detach from from the business of music. You know. Did he, did, uh, he, did he do that on the road with the band where he'd have to find out where all the pool halls were near the hotel? Uh, you know, it wasn't crazy, but yes, he did do that. And uh, <laughs> he's also quite the good uh, poker player, so he, he'll do that occasionally too. Okay. So you know where he's either in the pool hall or playing poker. You know where he is. Yes. Um, <laughs> fortunately, he doesn't go missing doing that too often. Okay. Uh, but it was funny. It was funny back in the day on the Kiss tour. I remember this specifically. You know, he's so good at it that you know a lot of the crew guys, you know, would come in with their ego and say, "Oh yeah, I can, I can beat this guy at poker." And and Mark was so good that he he got the nickname Per Diem Killer. <laughs> he's getting all the money off the crew guys exactly <laughs> oh brilliant brilliant <laughs> well Michael I know you're playing up my way on June the 18th in uh, the Anheuser Busch Brewery so I'm going to try go to that show I've never seen you guys live oh I'll, I'll look forward to, 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 to seeing that part of New Hampshire it's been a while yeah so Michael I'm going to leave you go do you want to give out the websites where people can get in touch with you or the band Sure. Uh, Official Great White. Um, that's the the website, you know, for the uh, the band page. Um, you know, I, I'm personally taking a break from the social media, but you can find Mark and Audie on Twitter and on Instagram, just with their names. And uh, our uh, our agency is a uh, big time entertainment. That's uh, you know, because we do get a lot of requests from people like how can we hire you? Who do we need to talk to? You know, we come across people out there and to get in touch with our agent and, and he'll make it happen, you know? And so that's, uh, that's always one I like to leave with people. Okay. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You as well, Richie. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, uh, have a good, have a good rest of the day and have a good weekend. Thank you much. All right. I'll see you soon. 
Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it. The uh, second week of Richie's chat with Great White's Michael Lardy. If you want to keep up with those guys, you can go to officialgreatwhite.com. Lots of... Uh, Lots of tour dates up there all the way through the summer with stuff. A lot of stuff they're doing with uh, Queensryche and stuff with Slaughter. And uh, stuff is going right all the way through. They got dates up there up until September 15th. So all kinds of stuff there if you want to go check them out live. And like I said, go to officialgreatwhite.com and check out the tour dates up there. And while you're over there, you might even want to head over to their store section as well. Lots of cool stuff up there they've got for merch stuff, including some official Great White Coffee. I love the roast names on here. They've got the Rock Me Roast, which is a medium roast. they got Big Time Brew, which is a dark roast. And then classic name for one, Face the Day Roast, which is actually a light roast. I think I would have switched up something there. Because I think you need more than a light roast to face the day. You can even get the uh, Great White Coffee Mug to go along with that if you so desire. So lots of cool stuff up there merch-wise as well. So support the band. Go out there. See them live. And if at all possible, check out what they got available up there for swag and pick yourself some stuff up. And speaking about picking stuff up, have any of you noticed that it seems like it's getting longer and longer for any of the vinyl that you order these days to actually come in. I swear, I think on average now, if you do a pre-order and it gives you a date, add three months to that date at least before you actually see that thing show up. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I could see when we were early in COVID and supply chain was kind of weird, but now it's almost pretty routine, I think, where I'm just tracking my stuff that I've got ordered. And a lot of times, as a good example... The brand new one from Anvil. It's been so long since I pre-ordered it that I forgot that I had actually pre-ordered that thing the day that it was announced. And here we are now a few weeks after release and I don't even have a shipping notification on anything on there. It's kind of crazy, you know, and I know a lot of people think, oh, you guys, you know, you do the show, you get a lot of free stuff. And, you know, the reality is we really don't. At one point, I think we had a lot of stuff that would come in on various labels, mostly European stuff, but not anymore. And usually we're recommending stuff. We're actually putting our hard earned cash down to buy it. So I can definitely tell you that uh, with the amount of stuff that I do order, especially vinyl, it's getting kind of depressing of what that lag time is. I don't know. Just thought I'd mention it. Just something that's really been just pissing me off lately as these things just drag and drag. And sometimes it isn't even like a pre-order thing. It's something that is in stock, has been released for months. Even that stuff takes two or three months before it shows up. All right. Just needed a bitch. I'm sort of better now. So anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus the Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next time, as always, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant.
it's over. Go home.